morning, everybody. The sermon, like I said this morning, we're in, in Luke uh, chapter 4. And we started in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was tested in the wilderness. We've been going through the, the book of Luke, which is really a, a sort of, it's a part of our larger documentary series, the Jesus documentary, we're calling it. Because Luke has gathered, the author, Luke, has gathered numerous sources, like firsthand sources from that time, in order to compile his gospel message, the gospel being this book of the Bible that he's written about Jesus' life and times. And so he's gone through numerous sources trying to understand exactly what happened and how all of this stuff worked out so that we might come to a good, honest understanding of who Christ is or who Jesus claimed to be. And, and so the whole world was turned around at the time of Jesus' coming, right? So Jesus, if he was just a man would have been a significant historical figure just for the things that he had done. But what he claimed was that he was more than a man. And, and the things that he did made him more than just a human being, just another guy in the sort of folds of time. And this, for this reason, he hasn't disappeared from the sort of creases of history like so many other names have. The name of Jesus keeps coming up over and over and over. He's the most popular name that there really is. I mean, Historically speaking, this this book sells like a bazillion copies a day. Like it, you you cannot. It's the best-selling book of all time. Always. I was. We were watching that on the Alpha video. They said that that never has the Bible moved from the top-selling chart. When like Amazon does their list of like best-selling books, they exclude the Bible from it because it's always got first place. And then they put all the other bestsellers up there because this thing sells and sells and sells. And so there's something about Jesus that makes him more than just another historical figure. And so Luke is trying to present this to us. And so today we're at Luke chapter 4, which is this far through the Bible. It's, toward, it's in the New Testament. And, and then we're down into verse 31. So last Sunday, Jesus went to his hometown to Nazareth, and Nazareth rejected him. And there was a prophet who was never welcome in his hometown. So we went through all of that and what they were missing and what Jesus was trying to offer them. And we're learning more about Jesus as he steps into this role as more than just a rabbi. He's more than just a teacher. He's more than a philosopher. He's more than a wise sage. He is the Messiah. And that's who he's presenting himself as. So when he leaves Capernaum, when he comes to Capernaum, rather, he's teaching in the synagogues. And he opens up the book of Isaiah. And he reads out this messianic prophecy. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What he's claiming to be is more than just another teacher. He's more than a prophet. He is this Messiah person. And so they reject him, and he goes to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is the, the center of so much of Jesus' activity. He, if I printed off this verse or this, this little document today that went through all the different references to Capernaum and Jesus, and it's like a whole page landscape, double columns with like, just verse references after verse references after verse references. He does a lot of stuff in Capernaum. And then I think it's later on in Luke, he says, basically, shame on you, Capernaum, for if the miracles that I have done in Capernaum have been happened before in, um, what's the name of that, uh, Sodom, he's like, they would have, they would have repented a, a thousand times over. Never, it never would have happened to him the way that it happened. But you've had all of these things, and yet you've still rejected me. And so we're looking. This is Jesus is coming into Capernaum. He's been working in Capernaum. He's been doing lots of things. This is a center of a lot of his ministry. And he's trying to get a message across 
to the people in Capernaum. And the first one is all about his authority. And so before we get into this, I just want you to think of what you picture when you think of a person with authority. One of the first things in my head this morning, and this is dumb probably, but you know when you're playing pool, I played pool at Rockridge with Tim. If you guys ever play pool, don't play with Tim. He's just going to own you. I'm like, I think he was two shots in before I was like, so you got a pool table at your house there, Tim? And he's like, yep, I do. He's pretty good at pool, and I'm not. So uh, he was he was winning over and over. But you know when you're like losing at pool, and you have that shot that's lined up, and you're like, I'm going to get this thing. I'm going to like put this thing right down the throat of that hole. And you just drive that pool ball as hard as you can, and you put that thing in with authority, you know? That is like my my picture of like I've got all the confidence and the capacity to be able to do what I'm going to do, so I'm just going to do it with authority, right? So you have this this credentialing, this, the ability to do what you claim to be able to do as, as a person with authority. Or you have like a drill sergeant, right? He's got all of his credentialing hanging off on his medals and all these other things or acts of valor in battle or different things like that. I remember one time when I was a kid, I went into my my church, I had broken after school because I had to go to the bathroom. We were going to have a youth group at, at the church after school. So I would get there, and my mom, who was leading the youth group, she would come after she did her bus route. So we would walk up to the church after school and kick around until she came off her bus route and then let us in. But I had to go to the bathroom really bad, and I knew that the nursery window downstairs was open. And so I went into that window, and I went and let my buddy in, and then we were just hanging out in the church waiting for her to show up harmlessly, unless you were the neighbor across the street who watched these kids break into the church and called the police on them. And I was sitting in this chair, like the police come and they're like, what's going on here, right? Because it's America and they're still like that. Um, and so I'm like a 10-year-old kid and I'm sitting in this chair and, uh, and he's standing there and there's another police officer there and I'm reading, he's got this little medal on here and it says, sharpshooter award and i'm thinking i can't run there's, i'm not going to be able to run away from this guy because he's going to shoot me dead but there's i know that he has the authority to do what he needs to do it's written all over him right you see it all over the place and then the same with if you were to buy i looked up on google like the authoritative guide so the first book that came up was like something like um uh, dealing with adhd and children the complete authoritative guide for parents and i'm like how do we know that it's authoritative? When you read in the description, the very first thing describing the book is not what the book is about. It's about the credentials of the author as a researcher and clinician for all these years. And his name has PhD following it. He's going to make sure that you know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has the authority to speak on the subject that he's speaking on. Otherwise, you won't listen to him or you won't buy his book. And if you do buy his book, you won't take it very seriously because he doesn't have the authority to speak like he claims. Now, if I were to write a book on ADHD, nobody would buy it. I have a master's degree in divinity, and I have uh, some experience in the pastorate. So if I said, here's the, the complete guide on ADHD and children, uh, a, a pastor's perspective, nobody would really care. Like They would just be like, whatever, I don't care. You have a, you have a master's degree, but I don't care what you have to say about ADHD. Right? Or if an ophthalmologist wrote the complete, definitive, authoritative guide on ADHD, nobody would buy it because they have a specialization in a different field. But if I wrote 
a book on ADHD, which I have ADHD, I have a diagnosis of ADHD, and I'm learning to pastor within that and lead out of that kind of place and space. Now, that's a different kind of book, right? So I could say like a pastor's perspective on ADHD or something like that, uh, a guide for dealing with ministry and mindlessness or something, I don't know what you call it, but who cares? It, uh, I'll, I'll forget about it tomorrow, don't worry. Anyway, if I could write a book like that, and people would buy that book because I have personal experience. And so personal experience also is one of these things which lends authority to a person. There would be people, it would be a narrow market probably, that would maybe care what I had to say about that based on my experience in the ministry and based on my experience with ADHD myself. So, or ADD, or I don't know, I forget all what that means. But, okay, so here's the thing. Luke 4, 31 to 37 Jesus is recognized as a person with authority. So let's go to Luke chapter 4, verse 31. I'm just going to read it. It says, Then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. Now this is a big deal. So Jesus is redefining the Sabbath all the time. And so whenever he's acting and doing things on the Sabbath, this is the first of five different things that he's going to do on the Sabbath. So it's important that we note it's the Sabbath, because the Sabbath had rules around it. But it says, in verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. So that's the preface to this story. As they're saying, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Let me tell you a story based on this what that would reveal or explain to you what that authority was like. And so Luke launches into this. It says, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. And he cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. <coughs> Excuse me, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all, and he came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed, and they said to each other, What words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. All right, so... Pardon the, another Lord of the Rings illustration. I've been reading through the books, and I just got to use them because I'm reading through them, so I might as well use them for my sermon. But if you remember in the Lord of the Rings, if you haven't watched it, spoiler alert, there's going to be a few spoilers here, but it's been out for a really long time, so get with it and get the Lord of the Rings. But if you're reading the book, when Gandalf, in, in the second book, in the Two Towers, when Gandalf goes to confront Sauron, Gandalf is this great, wise, powerful wizard, and he's got power. He's got some strength to do this or that. Then Gandalf goes through this crazy time with a foul rock. That was another spoiler alert. But then he comes back, and he's a transformed person. And he has more than just the powers that he had before. He becomes Gandalf the White. And he goes and he confronts this other bad sorcerer, wizard guy, Sauron. And when he confronts Sauron at the Tower of Isengard, all of Isengard has lays in ruins. The tree ants have wrecked everything. They've, they've done all this stuff. And he confronts him, and he's, he's telling him, all of these things, like Saruman's trying to like control him and manipulate him because Saruman's always been kind of his boss previously. And then he tries to like cast him down, and Gandalf just bears it. He has like not impacted by it at all. And this makes Saruman very angry, so he starts to flee. And with a single word, Gandalf just says, stop, turn around and come back. And he's just down on his face. He has like, he shows this new authority that he has that he never had before. And he's not demonstrating it in this big outward sign of power or anything like that. He's just using his voice, and he must obey. 
Sauron must obey his voice. And so we see he has this new kind of power, not because he's like doing big magic spells or anything like that, but because he now has the ability to tell him what to do. And so he breaks his staff and it's this big dramatic moment. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But the point is he has this authority to just speak and he's obeyed. And this is the same kind of thing that we see here with Jesus. So this demon inside of this man recognizes him, says, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You come to destroy us. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, nobody else has recognized this in Jesus yet. Nobody else is saying, you're the Holy, I know who you are. And yet Jesus says to him, be quiet. Jesus says sternly, come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down there before them all without injuring him. He just obeys. So what are we learning about Jesus? One is that Jesus has this authority. Jesus has the authority over the things that we can't see or understand. He has a view into a world that was previously just imagined. Jesus is able to speak to these demons and, and command them. He's able to have authority over top of them that they don't, they don't seem, well, that they seem to recognize, but other people are just beginning to recognize. And so this is a trick that, not a trick, but this is one of the things that Jesus does in order to reveal the authority that he has in even more important areas of our life. He's demonstrating his lordship and his messiahship over not just the physical world by healing people and doing these other things, but over even the spiritual world. And so the people look at him in awe. It says the people were amazed and they said to each other, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And of course, because of that, the news about him spread throughout the surrounding areas. So Jesus' ministry is growing and growing around his reputation as one who has authority. But what authority does he have? He, what credentials does he have in order to do this? They're not outward credentials that we see. You know, he was born in a manger. He's a lowly dude. And he's just teaching with wisdom. And people are starting to recognize this. And he, he has these new ability to speak to demons and to command them and to give them uh, a, an order that they must obey, even though they recognize who he is. And so Jesus is demonstrating that he has the ability to be in command and authority, that his messiahship extends over all of these different areas. In, in the Greek, uh, the word authority is exousia. And so it means, if you were to translate it, I guess it means the power to act. So Jesus has authority. He has the power to act in this way. And that's good news for the people because previously what hope was there for a person who was suffering in the way that this man was suffering? What hope did he have that that, that suffering could end? And then Jesus comes and he frees him from this, this state of possession, but he's also demonstrating his authority over these things. Now the root of that word, exousia, is ousia, which means property or wealth. So it's basically pointing to the means that a person would rest their authority on. I've got all the property, and I can speak to this thing. I have all the wealth on the matter. I can speak to this thing. And X means it comes out of that. It comes out of your own property, your own authority, your own means. This, this uh, speaking, the power to act is, is, a, is a way of doing that. And then the advent, of course, is parousia. The, the, the Greek for that is parousia, the coming alongside of his own property, his own things that is his own. He's coming alongside of his own in the Advent, this, this coming to us or whatever. And it's this beautiful thing. And so Jesus is demonstrating he has the authority 
over this man. He has the authority over this demon. He has the authority over this situation, over sickness and healing. And this is all a part of what the Messiah does. So what does what does the the demon recognize in Jesus that we that the rest of the world was missing? First of all, he says, "Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to us first? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God." So he recognizes Jesus's place as the Holy One, this consecrated individual, and this is part of the things that gives him the credentials or the power, the dynamos, to be able to act in this situation. This this holy life that he has lived allows him to speak into these different things. And this is a part of what Jesus is, is saying. He's, he's exercising that authority. And the demon recognizes it right away. Right away he recognizes it. And then he says, what do you want with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? He recognizes what Jesus is capable of. He wouldn't say that to just you or I if we walked into the thing. Oh, what do you want? Are you Did you come here to destroy me? The demon recognizes that Jesus has this ability to do this. And so how does Jesus use his own authority? He silences this liar, this person that has held this person in captivity for so long. He silences him, and then he casts him out, and the man leaves unhurt. The man, sorry, the man is left unhurt, on the, you know, crumpled on the floor, but he's, he's unhurt, it says. And so the demon is gone. So he casts him away, and he restores this person. Now, that's a big story for the guy. But everybody watching, it's a big story for them too because they just saw something that never happened before. They just saw this brand new thing enter into reality, into the part of the world. And they're going, man, this guy has this power as a human being to be able to do this stuff. They don't fully understand. They haven't grasped this like Messiah thing yet, but they're starting to grasp it. And that's what's starting to happen here. So why is Jesus doing this? Why is he revealing this side of his authority? It's in order to demonstrate, I would suggest, it's in order to demonstrate by what is visible, an invisible authority that Jesus has. He's demonstrating in a visible way an invisible reality about who he is as the Messiah. He's showing it in a sense. And so this goes along with a lot of the miraculous things that Jesus does. When he heals, he sees, we see the world watching, sees he must have the power to say or do what he has the power to say or do. But all of these lead up to something else for Jesus. He doesn't, his whole ministry isn't in healing the handful of people that he healed or in casting out the handfuls or legions of demons that he casts out. That's not the whole reason that he came. He came with even more power than that. Those are all demonstrations of this greater reality of who Christ is. This, this Messiah who has the ability to see into your life and my life, to look at, at our sinful selves and to be able to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. It's the power of forgiveness that Christ is bringing into the world. Because every sin, chiefly, first and foremost, is a sin against God. I could, I could murder another person, and that's first and foremost a sin against God. Against God's the creator, who was the person who made this whole thing, who made this whole order for a reason, who, who set it into motion and into purpose in order that he might be glorified, and then we break that system, and that's a sin against God. And so all of these sins, all of these things that humanity has been responsible for have been first and foremost against God, and nobody has been able to speak on behalf of them as a human being, but Jesus has the power to forgive sins, and that's a big deal. So I want to turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. 
where this is demonstrated, I think, pretty clearly. So Matthew is a couple books before Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew is a couple books before Luke. And we're in chapter 9. And this is the story of Jesus forgiving and healing the paralyzed man. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Mm -hmm. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man, laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> now, that's confusing to us. I, I think most of us would go, Wow, I bet he felt kind of ripped off. Like, no, we brought this paralyzed guy here, you know, for a little bit more than just like some nice words about him, Jesus. We brought him here because he's paralyzed and he wants to be healed. And so the first thing is, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven you. And that's really good news to him. In that day, uh, you see this in John chapter 9, the, the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his family, that this man was born blind? The disciples are asking Jesus this. And she says, neither. People have a connection. Back in this day, they had a very strong connection between sin and, and like physical ailments. right? So if you're born blind, it's assumed that that's on behalf of sin on some level or another. But Jesus says, neither this man nor his family sinned. This was happened so that God might be glorified in this whole situation. But the, the underlying assumption is that if this paraplegic man, this paralytic, was, was brought before Jesus... The reason he was a paralytic was because he had sinned. And so the first thing that Jesus speaks to, the first demonstration of his power, is his ability to forgive the man, to forgive him of his sins. And he's not disappointed in that. And at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow's blaspheming. He, he claims to have the power to forgive sins, but only God can do that. He's claiming to be God. And so then that's a big that's a big struggle. If it's true, if it's true that Jesus has the ability to forgive sins, then he's blaspheming. Even if it's not, he's blaspheming. And so in order to set all of this straight, it says in verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say? To say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then the man got up, and he went home. He obeyed. <laughs> he obeyed a voice of authority. The man obeyed that voice of authority. He got up, took his mat, and he went home. Jesus has that authority to do it. But the whole point of this is not that the man left healed, but that the man left forgiven. We lose track of that really fast, especially now when we don't have the same link between like, I've got a cold, it must be because I like, I don't know, cheated on my taxes or whatever it is, right? Like we don't always have that same kind of link to things. But in this day, Jesus is saying, look, I have, if, if a person had the ability to heal somebody, that was a big deal because it was assumed that they were dealing with the sins. They were forgiving their sins by nature of that miracle of that healing or whatever, right? But Jesus is saying, I've got this power to forgive sins. And then he's showing off this invisible reality with this visible manifestation. He's showing it off by healing this person and saying, look, I want you to believe that this is the case. Because that's the big, the big deal. It's not so that you can see how cool I am and that my authority extends even to this other bigger area. It's so that you can see that I have the authority to deal with sin, this impossible thing that should be blasphemy, I'm going to heal a person. 
which is nothing to Jesus. It is not a big deal for him to be able to do that. The bigger deal for us is to be forgiven of our sins. And this is where he's moving us. And this is where Jesus is calling us. Now the question is, this is great for Jesus, right? So we'll go back to Luke chapter 4. This is great. Jesus has the, the power and authority over demons. He has the power and authority to heal people. He has all of this power and authority. And what's he do with it? Well, he uses it in some cases. Right? He's healing some people, but for every person he heals, there's a thousand people that he doesn't heal. And, he, and it's only located in this one little window of history and time. It's not as though he's come to heal all of it all for all of eternity in this particular moment. But what he's saying is that one day that reality is going to happen. He's bringing about this new and better reality where all the brokenness is made unbroken, where all the bad things are made good again where all that restoration is true. And actually, he has the authority to do that. And so we're getting a glimpse of Jesus Christ coming in authority here. We have an opportunity to believe and, and hold on to that truth in faith. Now, here's the big, the big deal. Of all the miracles that Jesus does, nothing is as significant as the resurrection. I had an opportunity to talk to a guy the other day about... Um, he was a Muslim fella, and we were going through just kind of comparing our different faith systems and stuff, and they believe in Jesus, and so we were talking about that. And I'm like, what, what, how do you guys like reconcile like all of the miracles of Jesus or the, or the cross and the crucifixion and stuff like that? So he kind of talked about that, and I'm like, okay, I guess I can see how that you get there. And I'm like, and what about the resurrection? What do you what do you do with the resurrection? And he says to me, what is resurrection? And I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you, because in their worldview, there is no resurrection. There, not, that never happened because that is a, it's a worldview breaker and maker at the same time, right? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead indicates a power over not just sin and, and healthy bodies here and now, but over death itself, over the power of sin, right? The, the, the consequences of sin. Jesus can deal with all of that and come back to life. And so we have this resurrected king. And what does the resurrected Jesus, now who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, what does he say to his people after his ascension? If you, if you turn to John chapter 21, so it's the next book over, let's look at John chapter 20, sorry, verse 21. This is after Jesus raises the empty tomb, he appears to Mary Magdalene, and then he appears to the disciples. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. This is after he's, oh, I'll just read the whole thing. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. All of this thing that they were hoping for in the Messiah was coming true. And it was blowing their minds. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then this is crazy. This is a scandalous verse. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's crazy. Jesus gives his authority away to the people who are following him. Not just... Not just the power over sickness, not just the power over 
dark and evil forces because Jesus has the authority to do that. But over forgiveness of sins, Jesus is allowing us to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to people. He's allowing us to actually forgive and to welcome people, usher them into forgiveness like they have never known before. Not because we as another human forgive them, but because we can introduce them to the God who has already forgiven them. We can tell them that forgiveness already exists. And that's a great invitation because it is the greatest human need that we will have, far greater than any physical ailment, far greater than any fear or anything that we have weighing us down is our need to be forgiven by God, to be reconciled to God. And this is what Jesus gives us the power over. Now, this plays out. This plays out in the Christian life too. And this is why I wanted to talk to us about praying for each other this morning because we have the ability to speak on with Christ back behind us. He's signing our checks, so to speak, right? We get to say in the power of Christ's name, in Jesus' name. When we pray in Jesus' name, this is, this is the authority with which we pray for other people. And that's a big deal. Because we know people that need that kind of prayer. We ourselves need that kind of prayer. Not just for the, the, the healing of our bodies or things like that. And, and not every time that we pray for people do we see people heal. That doesn't happen all the time either, right? So we go, oh, how come I can't heal and all of these things? And yet it says at the same time that this and more is still possible for Christians who, who follow Christ. And so we get the opportunity to pray, to ask God to use his power and authority that does exist, to pray in faith that a person be healed from certain sicknesses. And we see that happening. Here in our congregation, we have numerous stories already over the last year of people being healed miraculously. And you can choose to believe it or not believe it or whatever. You can introduce your own skepticism if you want to. I, I get it. But that's the, the, the reality is, is that Jesus does still heal. Now, if we never prayed for healing, you could say that, no, Jesus never does heal. But sometimes when we pray for it, we see healings like that. And sometimes when we pray for it, when we were just most recently, I had an experience with a lady who had been a Satanist for a long part of her life. And you could just, you could just see this weight that was around her dark eyes, just very like, oh, just looked beat up. And had heard about who Christ was and wanted more of that in her life. And so I just invited her to confess those things to God. And she had invited a demon into her, into her life. And it was all these like dark things, right? And her question to me was, do you believe in demons? When, that's how she started this conversation. Now I wonder how you might answer that question, right? I answered it, yes, I do believe in demons. Obviously, Jesus himself believed in demons. I don't believe that they have power over Christ, but I believe that they existed and that they're a reality, right? And that we have a place of authority to speak from when it comes to these things as well. In Christ's name, I don't recommend doing this in your own strength or into your own merit. But we have the ability to pray for these people, to pray for freedom and to release people who have been held captive to sin and pain for all of these. We have the ability to pray for these things as followers of Christ in, in the name of Christ. We get to call these things out. And so she confessed these things to God as we prayed together. And I prayed for her. I prayed that, that this darkness would leave and that we would stand in the light. And, and you know, there's a, it's a funny thing. Being in the dark can be a very comfortable place to be, right? Being 
hidden away from everybody where nobody can see you. Nobody knows what you've done. Nobody knows all the pain that you've been through or the pain that you've brought into your own life, the stuff that you're guilty of or capable of or whatever it is. And so we surround ourselves with darkness, right? We do that because it's safe there. But what more beautiful thing is there than to invite the light, to step into that light and to be exposed utterly and completely for all that we are, all that we've ever done, all that we've ever said, thought, or, or entertained, and then to be forgiven. And then to receive acceptance with that light shining all over us to be able to, to stand before God and for him to call us his beloved child. What more beautiful place is there in life than that? And to be able to be freed from that darkness that just weighs us down. What more beautiful thing is there than that? Than to be able to sit in the light fully exposed and vulnerable, and to be forgiven and accepted and loved. It's a beautiful thing. And so as we prayed for her, we, you know, we finished up that prayer, and I thought I was maybe making it up, but after, afterward, it was just like the dark was gone and the color was back into that face, and you could see a joy that hadn't been there before. I thought, man, that's, that's an unbelievable thing. It's this sort of physical representation of an invisible inner reality that was happening. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I thought maybe maybe I was making it up. I was talking to Rachel on the way back uh, from Penticton in the car, and she said, no, I saw that too. I, I noticed like a change of countenance in that person afterwards. It was like they, they looked to be a different person. And it, it's hard to explain that kind of thing, but that there is power. There is authority, and, there, and it's real. <laughs> and we don't need to be afraid of it, but we need to step into it. Because Jesus sends his disciples out with that authority so that they might use it, so that they might, they might bring that good news into the world and share it around and, and, and let the world know that, that forgiveness and acceptance and all of this is true and real and now. And it's here. And it's going to be all better. One day when, in faith as we join God in heaven or he comes back, whichever comes first, we are, we are going to see the restoration of all things. God, this is not a fake thing. All right? And we get, to, we get to experience that and participate in that sort of unveiling of who God is and the kingdom that he's bringing in right now in our, in our very lives and our midst as we watch this, this dark veil be lifted from the lives of people who have been held in the oppression to sin for their whole lives. We get to see that veil being lifted and we get to see Christ shining in that person. We get to see them move from, from anger to forgiveness. We get to see them move from fear to love and confidence and boldness. We get to see this, this beautiful thing. And so I would encourage you to take this commissioning seriously. When Christ sends out his disciples, he's sending them out with this authority. And, and we need to take that seriously. We need to pray in our own lives as though we have, as though Christ at least has that authority to act in our own lives, right? We can't make excuses for the way that that the, the sins that we want to keep in there or pretend as though he doesn't have the power to topple down the idols that we put up into our own lives, the power to, to rewrite our existence. We, we can't keep pretending that and still say that Jesus Christ was more than a human being, that he was the Messiah. This is the, the authority that he has over sin and death and that's made manifest in the resurrection. We don't need more physical proof of it. We don't, it doesn't have to be that every time we pray for healing, we see somebody healed of their sickness or whatever else. Jesus proved it 
when he rose from the grave. <laughs> Jesus proved that he had that authority when he rose from the grave. And he gave these examples and he wrote them down. And we still have very good detailed accounts of what he did so that we can believe and take it in faith that he has not just the power to do that, but the power to even forgive sins. And we get to proclaim that with boldness and with joy. And so I would invite you into that. This, this week, look around. Find, find these places and invite Christ into the dark. Invite Jesus into these places of, of hurt and oppression that you've experienced for too long or that you've seen in other people's lives and say, can I pray for you in this, in this thing? Maybe this is something that we, that we ask Jesus about, that we need the authority and love of God to ask. So would you pray with me as we, as we close this in? God, oh, we're just so grateful for your word. We're, we're so grateful for who you are and how you have come to act among us. And we pray, God, that you would bring this reality to us, and that you would help us to move out with confidence in who you are. And, God, that you would be securing the faith of those of us that are prone to doubt and prone to wonder Lord, is it possible? God, would you show yourself? Would you reveal yourself to those people that, that we might know that you can forgive us? That we might know that you have power over these things in our lives and that you are not impotent or uncaring, but that you are powerful, that you have power and authority that we need so desperately. And we're grateful, God, that you have used it in the way that you have. And so we just praise you this morning, Lord. And we ask that you would continue to join us as we as we move into communion and that you would accept that um, as worship, Lord. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.